0: Welcome back to the podcast, and thanks for listening in. Hard to believe this episode originally aired over three years ago. This was the Chief Warrant Officer Joseph Rosemond. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, as well as members of his crews and his wingman's crews. These guardsmen out in California rescued over 240 individuals during a set of wildfires that were ripping through the state back in 2020. Quite an incredible feat. They were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross by President Trump i'll share some photos over on social media but again i think it warrants bringing this one up out of the vault and down to the bottom of the lineup if you will because it gets buried in the podcast list if you haven't heard it i think you'll enjoy it and if you've heard it a long time ago i think you'll enjoy it again so with that being said let's get back into it with chief warrant officer joseph rosemond
1: that's it the restricted area 6002 is still active that's on I had already made up a plan before we took off to go to this private airstrip and drop them off at the closest safe place as possible. But then we realized that I'm like, hey, so what are the injuries like? And and the fine juniors were telling me, dude, there, there's some battle ones back. We've got about, you know, two dozen people that have some sort of injury. Some of these are pretty major, major burns, uh, like, second third degree burns over 40 percent of your body or more um, There's some people with broken bones One guy literally crawled into the was crawling up to the aircraft because he had broken both of his ankles.
0: That's the voice of my guest today Chief Warrant Officer 5 Joseph Rosamond. he's a Chinook helicopter pilot and Army National Guardsman out in California and he's describing the events of September 5th where he and his crew alongside a Black Hawk crew, Credited with rescuing over 240 individuals who were stranded during these wildfires, many of which had severe injuries. It is quite an incredible story for their efforts. Each crew member was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for their heroism by the president just a few weeks ago. We're going to dig deep into this story. It's quite incredible, in my opinion. I've broken it into two parts, both of which are available right now for you to download and listen. Before we get rolling, just a few admin notes. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hangar24 Craft Brewing. They have three tap rooms, Redlands, California, Orange County, and then Lake Havasu, Arizona. If you're in the region, I highly encourage you to swing by. This is a beer aviation adventure company. Absolutely love their beer. I love the brand. I love the people. If you live in California, Arizona, you can actually have their beer shipped to you, or you can find it at a store near you. Hangar24craftbrewing.com. You can use their beer locator to find it near you i'd also like to thank squadron posters again a company that i just absolutely love and i've been a customer of theirs for several years they have upped the game from just making posters to share the adventure in your journey through life i would encourage you to swing by squadronposters.com and check out their bomber style artwork it's a really cool way to display again your journey and also they have metal nose art. So if you want something that look like it just came off the side of a plane with whatever graphic design you want on there, they can do that. Swing over to squadronposters.com and orders over $59 or more receive a 10% discount with the discount code RAIN10. That's RAIN10. I'd also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. Again, another company that I just absolutely love and I love their products. If you're looking to build a custom watch, this is their bread and butter. You can work with their design team to commemorate your journey, your organization, your unit, whatever it might be through a custom watch that's affordable and is high quality. Swing by wingmanwatch.com and you can use the code RAIN10 to receive a discount on any current watches on there, or you can mention my name to receive a discount on your group customization order. With the admin out of the way, let's get into the podcast with Chief Warrant Officer Joe Rosamond. So if you go ahead and say something real quick.
1: All right. Uh chest, uh, I guess testing the audio here.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. So, Joe, thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I'm branching out into the army. So C25 Rosamond, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Happy to have you here and excited to hear about your story. Having- Will you tell me a little about who you are, like the brief snapshot of how you got to where you are today in life and what you're doing?
1: Yeah. You know, it's really a, uh, I guess it's the right time, right place, uh, kind of, kind of story. I happen to be the only guy at, at the, uh, sitting there at the boards uh, for flight school when I actually applied. So, uh, I grew, I mean, I grew up as uh, in California and, uh, I, I had, uh, some roots here already, uh, ended up, I was actually going to join the air force, uh, called the recruiter at a high school. They never called me back. Uh, apparently they didn't like my senior uh, grades, but, <laughs> uh, uh, so the army, the, the army recruiter called me back, you know, and I'm like, Hey, I want to go fly. I, I've always wanted to go fly, you know, and, and, uh, goes, well, you know, I can't get you into flight school, but I can, we can get you near the people that, that can affect that. Right. And so ended up taking, uh, taking an MOS that put me in ops, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and immediately started working on, on that flight packet and got it done pretty quickly. And, and, uh, and they had a shortfall course for me. So they, uh, I went to the board, they were like, can you leave in a week and a half? I'm like, yeah, I I'm single. I have nothing to do. Yeah. I'll leave in a week and a half. Don't you know. Yeah. No, no. no joke. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I grew up, I was a, I was a boy scout. I, I'd always, had my parents that were, uh, uh, pushing me to do, to do things and make goals and make these small, smaller goals to reach bigger ones, you know? And, and that was one of the steps, uh, to, to accomplish what I wanted, you know, what I wanted to do.
0: And now you're a California guardsman flying yep. H-47s of Chinook. Have you been doing that your entire career?
1: Yeah. So, oh. uh, right out of flight school, I got the Chinook transition, uh, been flying chinooks the whole time i did get qualified in the lakota uh, a few years back when i was a, a battalion level dude never really progressed in it though um they keep asking me but uh I, at the <laughs> time i was also doing ratings uh catching up on all that uh so i fly around that that uh that Cessna that real fast Cessna. you know <laughs>
0: yeah just screaming <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: because you know like everybody else pre covid you know we were all looking at the airlines you know yeah uh, we were looking at the you, and that was my primary plan. In fact, I was supposed to be in training right now, but uh, COVID kind of messed all that up, and so I got all my fixed wing stuff done. And uh, went at the same time they wanted me to progress in the Lakota, I'm like, nah, that, lear- lear- learning that on top of what I'm already doing for myself is a little much, so I kind of postponed that a bit, but yeah, my whole career been I'm working on my 23rd year now, and uh, uh it's all been
0: all but two of it's been Chinooks. That's that's incredible, 23 years of flying. So we we're kind of joking before we hit the record button here. Like I had one sortie in Lakota, the down at Fort Polk, the guys who took me flying, I think much like yourselves, all all warrant officers, very seasoned guys who've been flying for the Army for a long time. They weren't huge fans of the Lakota, especially because they've been flying the Blackhawk, and I guess oh, it, yeah. it's just a super, it just it underpowered, couldn't carry as much. But drastic difference between the Lakota and the Chinook, right? Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing. at At our facility here in Stockton, we have both. I mean, we we run both the Lakota and the Chinook, and so yeah, they're they're two totally different airframes. Two, you know, the sizes are just just so much different. You know, and, and learning how to operate both of those here on the, like the same flight line, it, I mean, that was a challenge enough, But luckily, like we had some roots back. We had uh, Hueys and Cobras and Chinooks here for quite a while. You know, so we we kind of already had some some stuff set up. Uh, we had we had like kind of our infrastructure already kind of set up to have our, our skid side and our and our hook side of of the flight line and all that. So it's worked out well. We we were all very um, I guess all the Chinook guys when they said, "Oh, you're going to have the Lakotas there at your facility," we're like, we're kind of like, eh, "Are you sure about that?" <laughs> <Neither> <laughs> know.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, vast different worlds. I'm sure you know it's the same. And anywhere you go, right? Like, there's always pilots competing against pilots, but yeah. For flying the Chinook versus the Lakota and the guard, a like California guard, what does a day in the life of a Chinook pilot look like versus the day in the life of a Lakota pilot? Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Level up your listening with Bose QuietComfort Ultra Earbuds and Headphones with immersive sound and world-class noise cancellation for a not-so-silent night. Visit Bose.com slash Spotify to shop sound that's more than a present.
1: So, um, there, there actually is uh, quite a bit of difference there. We uh, The Chinook guys typically, I mean, one, uh, California, I think, has one of the best training areas, uh, especially for helicopters and what we do in general. I mean, we've got the mountains that go all the way up to, you know, 10, 12,000 feet in our training area. We've got in the other direction, we've got uh, coastal stuff and Southern California, we've got desert, you know, we've got every topographic type of uh, uh, area in California that we can go train at, which is great. And so uh, the Chinook guys will typically, uh, we'll go out to the east to the Sierras and uh, and because of the quality of that training area, it's really nice that we can go out and do what we think is just normal we're going to go out and pick up a sling load we're going to go do some slope landings do some terrain flight and we just think it's normal but it really is pretty spectacular in the amount of training you get and i really saw that uh come to uh come to light when we had our first deployment in 2003 that was right after the the kickoff of the war you know and and uh the unit had not been deployed since like Vietnam, you know, and, and all these Vietnam dudes were jumping ship because they'd already done their tours. Right. And, and so, and you, we realized pretty quickly how our training area really helped us prepare and get ready for what we were going to see overseas. And then once again, Oh, wait, when we did our Afghan deployment, we were already comfortable in the mountains whereas some, a lot of other units weren't, you know, and and the Schlitz kind of made for the mountains and, and we knew how to operate it in the, in those, uh, in that environment. So it made it really, uh, really easy to do that. And so that having that ability to just change, like, Oh, we're going to go to the desert. Well, uh, let's go to the desert training area and we'll go, we'll go do some dust landings out there. Um, it really helped out and being that we all just felt it was normal. That's what we do every week. We go out to the mountains, do some terrain flight, pick up a, a cement block or two, you know, and, uh, do it do it under goggles you know and and it's beautiful training area you know you, you get halfway done stop at tahoe for dinner and then goggle up come back type of thing and it's just uh it's really awesome to be able to do all that you know and we have a we've got some class b's near us some class charlies that are near us you know and 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 you can really get this um uh, uh i get this this broadening of your skills as a pilot you're not just stuck on a range going around the post, you know, every single day we, we can branch out and do a bunch of different things. Um, and, and the Lakota guys, they get to do the same stuff. They, I mean, they don't do sling loads as much as we do. I mean, they're not made for that and they just have a different mission. Um, but they'll go do, uh, they'll link up with some law enforcement guys. We have a, a pretty robust counter drug program and, uh, the Lakotas go out and do counter drug reconnaissance and, and, and they'll, uh, uh, the ground guys will will set up some nets and, and they'll they'll do a lot of reclamation of uh of grow sites and, and whatnot. Um and then they also have like the, the law enforcement type the thing. They we've got the night sun, some fleer on them, and they'll uh they'll go out and support local agencies and and that sort of thing. And um really unique on this on this last uh fire that we're on, they put they got these uh, uh LRAD, like large huge speakers, and they stuck them inside the cabin of the Lakota and they were just Those speakers are, they were really used for like crowd control. Yeah. Turn them up really loud and and like make it a really annoying sound and do some like right control stuff. But we used them to get like evacuation orders out on, on the John Muir trail. And so they were flying up and down the John Muir trail. just saying, Hey, evacuate now, evacuate now. Um, And they were able to cover a lot of ground uh, doing that, which, which is really, really unique for them.
0: Yeah. It's kind of wild to see all the different platforms and what they bring to the fight. Right. And then. It, yeah. it's different, right? Whether you're in combat or if you're fighting fires, whatever it might be. But i w I'm just kind of curious as being a fixed wing guy, and the very basic stuff. So a Chinook like versus a Lakota, like I've yeah. seen these like gnarly photos of a Chinook with like the tail end down on this hut on the side of a mountain in Afghanistan just unloading a bunch of dudes like onto the rooftop of this mud hut. Yeah. And I know did is it, yeah? So like I know there's like density, altitude. There's a lot of like skill that goes into doing it. But when it comes to like lifting stuff, if we go like at sea level, what's the difference between those two platforms and a Black Hawk? And then what is some of the challenges of flying in high altitude environments?
1: Yeah. So okay. Um, th- I think the basic difference between um the Chinook and any of those other helicopters, right? We're talking our traditional uh, helicopters that have a main rotor and a tail rotor, right? the Chinook doesn't have a tail rotor. It's got the two main rotors. They, they counter rotate, which sets the torque. But what's really unique about it is that now all of that, all of that lift that's being generated by those two rotor discs are going purely for lift, just to lift things up. Right. Whereas in your traditional helicopters, Lakota's Blackhawk shooters, it gets a little bit more complicated, but they, they have that anti-torque rotor on the tail and, uh, and some of that horsepower gets used to keep it from spinning in place, right? Um and um, and that's that's one of the main differences. And so of course capacities are going to be different. Uh since we're since the Chinooks are a cargo platform, they carry a lot of cargo, which means a lot of pounds of whatever, whether that's people, beans, bullets whatever. Right? Yeah. Um the uh I always make a uh, um a comparison when we do our our cal fire chaining area uh, we do a capabilities brief because we have a lot of new firefighters coming in and, uh, they, they don't know the capabilities either. Right. And so, uh, I always kind of set up the Blackhawk guys a little bit because I'll let them brief first. And then, you know, they'll say, Oh yeah, you're loving passengers. Uh, you know, whatever the, the pounds of cargo is, I think it might be, um, 6,000 pounds of cargo, something, something like that. Right. I, I'm not Blackhawk guy, guys, so I don't know. Um, And and, and they talk about their fuel burn or whatever. And I just walk up afterwards and say, everything they said, multiply it by three. That's what we can do. Right. (laughs) And uh, And I drop. Yeah. And that's also what we cost. I mean, both in the positive and the negative, we we cost three times more. We use three times as much fuel, but we can move three times as much stuff at
0: one time. You you know, and, Uh and and generally, it's kind of weird. It works out. Yeah. Which, how we stumbled across each other September 5th, you were pretty busy working. Yeah. And it comes down, I don't know, being able to make one trip into the hot zone and get a bunch of people out or into, depending on what your mission set is, is a big deal. So when it comes to flying yeah. a Chinook, obviously you're a bigger target. There are other things to consider. But on that night of September 5th, you were awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross along with the, all of your crew, as well as the crew of the Black Hawk crew, for rescuing yeah. over 240 people. It's a really busy night going in there and I really want to dig down into the sortie and that night in particular, can you kind of talk to like the lead up of what was happening in the days prior to that or the day of that mission? Yeah. So we, um, the
1: the entire state of California, the army guard and really the air guard as well, we were all responding to wildfires. And, and most of us, uh, most of the guys were responding to the, um, the wildfires up north that were caused by the lightning strikes. We had this rogue, like dry lightning storm come through and it just sparked off hundreds of fires. Um, and so they were, uh, a lot of the guys were responding to that. Well, at the same time, like my unit, the, the brigade headquarters, we were on our annual training, getting ready for our mobilization that's, that's coming up, right? And so there was a lot of us that were kind of out of the fight because we were doing that training instead of actual operational stuff. So... Uh-huh the the flight companies they they took over the brunt of the work they were they had all the crews out I mean we I think we searched to like five or six aircraft at one time uh from just our just our Chinook facility and that's not including the the seven to ten Blackhawks that were out on the fires and I mean just this massive response to, to all these fires going on and they were out there for a couple of weeks prior to September 5th so um they finally got kind of control of those fires and uh, they started releasing assets. Cal Fire started releasing assets, and we and I want to say just about every body was back at home station. They had just gotten done like the Tuesday before uh, this this mission on the fifth, and everybody was finally resetting. Um, actually, I want to say I remember I had trained up. Uh, we had an out of state group. We had an Illinois group come in, and I trained them up on the Monday and Tuesday prior to uh, prior to the fifth, and by I want to say by Thursday, they were, everybody was done. Everybody was released. Um, and Cal Fire re- released everybody. So everybody's resetting back at home station um, and getting ready for the long weekend, right? Labor Day weekend. And so Saturday comes around and um, uh, we get, it was late in the afternoon. It was probably like 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. And we I get this mass text from our flight scheduler. It's like, hey, looking for a crew to do a rescue. Uh, we know it's going to be mammoth. We think it's going to be mammoth pools, about 30 people. So I get the text, kind of getting ready for the weekend. But I'm like, Hey, honey, you know, all the other guys have been out busting their butts on fires. Uh, I feel like it's my turn to to volunteer for this. And she was, and she's been doing this for just as many years as me. Right. I mean, she's been an army wife for 23 years. Yep. Right. So, um, so she's like, yeah, whatever you feel like I, whatever you need to do. And so, I just responded to the text. Hey, I'm in, like I'm available. And I live really close to the facility. So my response time is half an hour versus some other guys that may be two and a half hours. Right. Right. So it just makes sense that when I'm available yeah, I I can do this. And most of the time our rescues are like one day missions. Right. So uh, go out, do, do whatever we need to do, come back home. And this time I, when I was getting ready, um, I asked my wife, Hey, you know, can you give me my water bottle all set up, get some ice in there and whatnot? And, and I'm going to pack, I'm going to pack an overnight bag just in case. It's already late in the afternoon. We might have to remain overnight uh, once we get this done, but uh, I'll just bring a one day bag. And and luckily I actually packed for three days, but
0: uh, <laughs> cause it ended up being eight days that we were out there. Um, and uh, were you operating in and out of your base or was it like a, a Ford operating base? No, so we had moved. So we, uh, so that afternoon, around
1: six thirty or so, we launched and we were heading down to the Fresno area. We ended up ro winning, we ended up ro winning in Fresno. Our Army uh, Guard unit, uh, their facility down in in Fresno. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we were out of our own home station, and um, but we went. So we, like I said, we we launched about six thirty at night. Uh, it was about an hour flight uh, hour and 10 minutes to get down to the, to the location. And, uh, and we got the word, Hey, just, there was a lot of talk about, okay, are we going to go to Fresno and stage or are we going to go directly to the incident? And the decision finally came that we're going to go directly to the incident. And this is right as we're getting ready to take off. Uh, so we get the text, even though I'm not supposed to my phone in the aircraft, right? <laughs> we, we call him, we call it MFD6. Right. Yeah. We've got five MFDs in the but that's like the stat column. That's the everything, right?
0: That's gonna give you the most information.
1: Yeah, totally, right. So pull it out. Okay, direct to the incident. So off we go, direct to Mammoth Pools. Um, but uh, we took off not knowing a lot. Like we knew that there was a fire there because these people were being rescued because of the fire, right? So, and and it it also kind of we got more information. Now it was thirty families, not just thirty people. So instead of one, one trip, now we know it's going to be multiple trips. Right. Yeah. Uh, It changes it for sure. Yeah. Had no idea that the Blackhawk was coming at this time. So we're doing some mental math in our head. We're like, okay, 120-ish people, it's going to be four trips. Yeah. This is going to be a long night. So we were kind of prepared for that, but we didn't know any of the frequencies for the fire, for the the TFR or the, uh, the fire traffic area. So, but luckily our, our training that we did with Cal Fire, I'm, I've done about 15 fire seasons in my career. So I, I'm pretty familiar with what we need to know. And so I already knew what we didn't know, right? So, um, which is when you're going into something and you just don't know what you don't know, that's probably the most dangerous, right? But at least we knew what what holes we needed to fill. And so I just got on the radio with the the North Ops or the Sacramento Emergency uh, Communication Center with for CAL FIRE. And started asking them, "Hey, I needed the information for the Creek Fire, and we're now we're you know, forty five minutes out, right? And uh, uh, and they were great. They gave us a bunch of frequencies, uh, and was able to get a hold of the the uh, air attack or the aerial supervisor for the fire while we were en route.
0: So, do they, you know, are used to combat right? Like a JTAC owns like a RAZ or something like that. You're checking in with operating these." stateside TFRs, you know, they'll pop up that way it's restricted, but who is owning that fight? If you will, is it, is it Cal fire? And is there a director that's managing all the air assets are moving in and out of, and people that are moving in and out who, who owns that?
1: Yeah. So um, the, the incident has a uh, the incident commander and he owns everything, right? He's, he's, he's over both the ground and the air kind of assets, but he's got people working for him. I mean, that could be us forest service. It could be the state, for us, it's CAL FIRE, right? Or it could be a local bay. And as the incident grows, it'll grow to a larger incident command team. And that team consists of all your ground operations, like your your branch chiefs and and that sort of thing. But then there's also the air operations branch director, uh, the AOBD, we call it. And that dude, he controls the air fight. He puts in uh, an aerial supervisor, an ASM, uh, and, they're, and that's a... Usually, like a uh, uh, a Bronco or like OV ten or or some somebody in a in a fixed wing airplane above the entire incident, and he's controlling what we call the fire traffic area, or the FTA. Um, and we call his call sign is, is usually like the incident name, like this was the Creek Fire, be the Creek Air Attack. him um, So he's the guy who's controlling the in and out, clearing people in, um, and when they get a lot. And and his basic job is one to control the air fight, but. Now the air fight turns into both fixed wing. We're talking tankers, uh Matt, He can see from, from above the fire, he can see like where it's running to with the big macro picture. Um and so he can make kind of priorities on where we're gonna where they're gonna drop tankers. So his main role is to drop tankers. So I got like global super tankers, C one thirties, uh the air guard C one thirties with their mass uh stuff on it, um and and usually like a few helicopters. Now when the when they start ordering more assets and they get a lot of helicopters, they have a lot of tankers, that becomes a little bit too much for one guy to handle. So they'll, they'll call in for what's called a helicopter coordinator or a HELCO is what we call them. And so it's a dude in a little helicopter. It'll type three helicopter, like a jet Ranger or something or a Lakota or Lakotas do that mission a lot. And, um, and they, they are, they have the same sort of aerial supervisor, uh, qualified guy that's on board and he's just getting direction from the, uh, Air attack and we will prioritize where the helicopters go. And so now the air attack only has to call one guy to say, Hey, I'm going to be dropping tankers in, you know, division whatever to hold the helicopters. And so all the, the helicopters will hold like at a dip site somewhere. Tankers will come in, drop, they'll get, do their exit. And then, okay, after this next tanker is in, the helicopters are cleared back in to start doing bucket work again. So, so then the helco will tell us that and we'll get, get going again. So there's this whole, Traffic area, kind of like an airport traffic area. i want to call it a fire traffic area. Sitting around any fire. So, um, and it starts with a 12 mile ring, and that's where we first need to start calling Air Attack, trying to get our clearance in. And if we, and hopefully we get our clearance right away. If we don't, then you don't get any closer than seven miles. At seven miles, you hold, uh, and that way it gives him time to do whatever he's doing, and then get and then get back to you, um, and it keeps you out of. That traffic area, so you're not becoming a hazard. You're not unexpected by somebody else who's he's going from you know a dip site to where he's where he's working on the fire. He's just going back and forth, back and forth all day long. And next thing you know, there's this this other aircraft that he wasn't expecting in there. Right? So it's just all about that control.
0: Yeah, different world. You know, again, I'm used to flying overseas. Like if it's in a combat zone, right? And I'm not really worried about helicopters unless it's a show of force, yeah. right? Like you're deconflicted, but. Watching some of those tankers drop in, like those tankers are low, and you're talking about a DC-10, like it is going to be a conflict. When it yeah. comes down to even like driving to the fire zone, I assume you guys are using four flight or some kind of moving map that is updating with real time TFRs. Are those TFRs pretty accurate? Is that like where you're getting your data from, like the most real time data as far as what yeah, the fire yeah. zone looks like?
1: Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll be we we'll, we have four flight on our iPads and whatnot and we have a, a a Stratus on board so we can have the real-time data for both traffic because there's times you're not going to have cell coverage on the iPad right so we use the Stratus in order to get the ADSB you know uh in and uh and the TFR and weather information and that sort of thing and uh yeah so that comes in really handy we can kind of see where people are coming in at especially now that it, the ADSB is mandated you know uh, so that comes in really really handy um in this particular night, there was no TFR established yet because it yeah. takes a little time, you know? So this thing grew so fast that they hadn't established the TFR yet. So it just, it really just came down to this training that we do every year and just knowing, okay, I can't get any closer than seven miles. Otherwise I'll be in somebody's way. And, uh, so, and, and there's nothing, there's nothing regulatory about it, right? There's it's yeah. not like it's controlled airspace. It's, A GA guy could go, oh, hey, look, fire. I'm going to go over there and check it out because my house is over by Sheaver Lake or whatever, right? And he can go blasting through there and it'll shut down the entire firefight, the aerial firefight, because there's somebody busting the the FTA. So that's like every year, Cal Fire puts out, hey, don't fly your drones. Don't fly your, don't go towards wildfires. Just stay away, you know, and uh, we can continue fighting.
0: It's kind of like, I mean, a MOA, right? Like I've had, I've stopped fights because guys have come blitzing through their VFR. Which is completely legal to do, yeah. I and mean, it's not a TFR, a temporary flight restriction. Like sounds yeah. like it's le- you know it's legal, right? Like an FTA is not necessarily a regulatory right. thing, as you mentioned. So that's wild. That, but I can completely see people want to go. It's like the rubberneckers, right? Oh yeah, want to go Monster see the flames. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> literally, yeah. literally, to flames. Yeah. So, so on that night, you guys reposition, or you're repositioning down to Fresno, but en route, you guys vector over to the creek fire
1: yeah so right as we're getting ready to take off we get the word go go direct to the to the incident um so we got all the information we needed we got a hold of the air attack that was above the fire still because it was still daylight they fly until night they don't do night ops um so it was getting close to sunset when we got there called him up he cleared us in right away um and then i i tried to verify the grid coordinate right like or the lat long um like and uh, and so through some of the fog of war or some of the some of the, the confusion going on there, I get a grid coordinate and of course it's it's not in the right format. It doesn't work in the FMS, right? And uh, so, all right, man, go through. Luckily, we have a conversion thing on the iPad, so you know I'm converting you know lat longs and plugging them into the FMS, and pop, and the little icon will pop up on my moving map. And that's nowhere near man. you know. So and uh, and so I had about. Seven different, I had like seven different lat longs that I had had all labeled in there as you know potential LZ one, potential LZ two, you know, and they were none of them were near each other, none of them were near where I thought we were going, so it just added a little bit more confusion. And during that, we had decided that that we're just going to kind of circle right here by the fire um, in this area that we're kind of out of the way. We're not we're they're dropping tankers. We're, we're we're not in the way. The helicopters not in the way. The fixed wing guys. And we're just going to kind of have a tactical pause here and and uh, try to figure out where exactly we need to go. Um, and we kind of have this idea in the back of our minds, well, we're supposed to be going to Mammoth Pools, but we need somebody to to kind of clear us in there. So I'm trying to use their lingo, right, and use some of the terrain features on the map to kind of explain to this air tech, hey, this is where I want to go. This is where I am, and this is where I want to go. Am I clear to do that, right? Can I Can I do that without getting in the way of, of somebody else and and that took a little bit of conversation and about that same time uh the Blackhawk showed up and I didn't know the Blackhawk was coming until they called in and uh, is that from your sister squadron or is that another unit yeah that was another unit yeah another unit out well it's still California Guard still under the 40th cab just the guys out of Fresno that are based okay up. and uh and I heard them call in so we switched over to their their frequency, their internal frequency, started talking to them. But they kind of got held out because now it what it ended up happening is is the air attack that was on scene, where he got the bingo fuel, right? So he was running out of fuel. The next air attack shows up on scene, they're doing a handoff, like a battle handover for the fire. They've got this bing long briefing that they have to do. And now he's got us calling in and he's got this blackout calling in it was a little probably a little overwhelming, I would imagine. And Damn. so he holds the Black Hawk out. as said, no, you're not third in. Stay, stay outside of the, of the uh, fire traffic area for now. And um, while he figures out what I... Uh, so I'm asking him a bunch of questions, and I'm sure he didn't have the information. He's just trying to do the best he can, you know. And um, eventually what ends up happening is all the tankers finish dropping. All the helicopters leave because it's nighttime. And everybody's at cutoff. They call it cutoffs like half hour after sunset. And he's like, Hey guys, uh, I'm out. Like the show's all yours. You're the only one out here. And uh good luck. Here's a here's a frequency to call the uh the incident commander down on the ground and uh see you guys in the morning. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and uh that was like the best thing that could have happened, I think, at at is now it's like, all right, we own the airspace, we're the only ones out here. I don't have to worry about going in a vert IMC into a smoke cloud, climbing up into a tanker, climbing up into into somebody. So that really took a lot of the risk and mitigated it, you know, like real quickly. Now so it's just me and the Blackhawk and now we and we're in the same basically that we're in the same unit, right? And so we have standardized processes that, that we were working. And um and and about that times when you know I started we were right in the transition period, not quite E E N T, and you know, but not quite dark enough for goggles, not quite bright enough for your naked eye. Um, and so I'm flipping the goggles back and forth and finally get to a point where like, hey, guys, it's it's a whole lot better uh, with goggles on right now. So that's all transition
0: goggles. Um, and that's the, that's the worst part Oh yeah, of like either nighttime or daytime is that transition. That's like the most dangerous part yep. flying around is because the night vision doesn't really work. Yeah. Your eyes don't really work. And then I can't even imagine operating in that environment. I've seen the videos and I'm um, posting them on social media again, like everything is on fire. It's just yeah. burning in smoke. So that's an incredibly hazardous spot to be flying around.
1: Yeah. So we uh we had found this like little clear zone that was kind of clear of the smoke, outside of the active fire. We're kind of circling this apple orchard for a while and we and uh, we're like, okay, well, we need to come up with a plan because uh and we so we verified with the the guy on the ground, the ops people on the ground with as a commander like hey just just tell us where these people are like are they at mammoth pools or are they somewhere else and he confirmed mammoth pools for us so we we knew right away all right i already have that in the gps let's go we need to come up with a plan to go and get these people um we had found a portion so like the really active fire has a lot of smoke building up from, from that and it's like a wall of smoke right so uh, we find this spot in the fire way down in the drainage, uh, San Joaquin river drainage where there's a, there's like a break in it as it crossed the river, water's on fire. So they're like, there's this break where the river is of this active, really active fire and where the smoke is. Um, they're like, Hey, you know, how about we try to go through right there and we'll see what's on the other side. Cause at this point we don't really know what's on the other side as far as conditions are. Cause all you see is the wall. Right. Um, everybody agreed uh the entire crew was like yeah i'm on board with that you know uh where are we still had some outs right we could turn around we could climb up and we didn't have to worry about traffic like i said so we we just go for that hole in the the smoke wall and once we got through it and to the other side we realized it's dark it's really dark and it's really smoky you know and almost immediately we're like how the hell are we going to see the terrain um because now the terrain's black, because it's burned, uh, it's dark, and uh, and pretty quickly after that that initial like oh my god kind of moment, um, we started making out like oh hey look like all these trees are still on fire, all these bushes, all this vegetation still on fire, and you can see some of the videos out there, some of the pictures that have been been posted around where it looks like just stars, you know, stars on the night sky, and, and they, but they were fires illuminating this terrain. And, uh, and that's really how we were able to see the terrain. We would like, it was so dark that it was, you know, hand in front of your face, not seeing anything dark, but these little spot fires were, were kind of outlining the contours for us.
0: Yeah, Joe, that's one thing that I guess I saw that video and for people that are listening, then go look at this, that perspective right there to me, like is mind boggling because, When I saw that video, I'm like, oh, everything is on fire. Obviously, it's a bad spot. But I've been flying around at night, like over water where you can't tell if it's a boat or if it's stars, curing, like, for you to say, the only way we could find out was terrain is because it was burning, right? All those little fires. Like, again, for those listening, like, it's an incredibly hazardous spot to be flying around. Like, Much more so than you know, most things, other than getting right. shot yeah. at, like that's it's it's right below that one, I'd say. Yeah,
1: and, and and I've said it uh a couple of times where like this was probably the most dangerous spot that we intentionally put ourselves into in my entire career. Of course, when we were talking about like combat stuff and we're talking about getting shot at, that's somebody else making a decision. They, you know, they have a choice yeah. in that in that fight, and, and you don't really have that, that choice, it just happens, right? And you and you have to react to it. But this was definitely the, the worst intentional place that that we kind of put ourselves into but
0: each one of the crew we
1: felt that the, the reward was worth that risk
0: and you're operating purely based upon grids which i will say too it is phenomenal to me that in 2020 that we have issues with grids i ran into it in my last deployment with minutes decimal yep. minutes which as i found out because going to go drop bombs the guy was going to take the grids we were given and put them in the jet, which was minutes, decimal seconds and put them in the jet, which is minutes, decimal minutes. and would have ended really poorly. And after this whole rabbit trail come to find out that no U S fighter uses minutes, decimal seconds, like we're given the grids in uh, from the strike planners. uh, It's only for the T lamb. So it's, it's attention to detail and minor things like that, that obviously make a big difference. But you guys, you've converted those, and now you're operating purely based off probably somewhat old data, data you've had to convert in order to fly into, you know, the devil's den to go find these people. So how did you, I mean, was it those grids that took you right to the first people you had to go to, or what, what so was it?
1: All those grids we
0: were given, they
1: were bad. Like, and and, and <laughs> over the years, you know, you like you said, you, you learn, like, all right, I've been burned on a bad grid before. And luckily for me, it just means landing in the wrong spot. It doesn't mean I blew up the wrong town, right? Or whatever, <laughs> you know, right. the wrong time, right? Yep. So um, I've been burned on that before. And and so every time I get a grid and they, it, I can you can tell when they see it a certain way, like if they say like 32 <laughs> dot, you know, seven, and it give you this like eight digits after the decimal, you know, okay, that's yeah. degrees, decimal degrees, right? <laughs> and yeah. uh, and yep. so- and we get this other weird one, like I always ask, all right, what is that degrees, minutes, seconds, or is that degrees, minutes, tenths of minutes, right? And and usually that blows their mind. They're like, what? Like they don't know what yeah. they are talking about. But um and so pretty quickly you can figure that out. And um so all those grids were bad. They were all right there at the edge of the fire, like basically where I was at, within like five miles. And I'm like, none of those are right, none of them are near a lake. They're you know, they I don't know where these grids came from. So what ended up happening, once I called the the Air Ops guy, or I'm sorry, the uh, the operations branch chief, I was like, just tell me, are they at Mammoth Pools? They're like, yep, they're at Mammoth Pools. I said, like, Cool. I can see Mammoth Pools on a map. I put my cursor over there, dropped it, dropped a coordinate right on Mammoth Pools. I didn't have to look at the coordinates. You know, it was just, you know, pointy talky type of stuff, and uh, go direct there. And so that's that's how that worked out. And so once we got to the lake after going through this canyon of fire, right, um, once we got to the lake, then it became kind of like, okay, now where on the lake are these people? It's not like we had a 10-digit grid or or, or a really good lat line. It was a we part of the center point of the lake. But once we got there, they heard us and they started flashing all their lights on their vehicles that were down there, which helped out. You know, it, it, it yeah. would have been going the the wrong way because my initial, I was in the right seat. So my initial reaction, once we hit the, the spillway was to turn right and just start following and looking at the at the beach line. But they were over at my 10 o'clock. And, and my co-pilot, he, he was one. hey, I see flashlights over there. Perfect, let's turn. Let's turn that way. And I ended up being them.
0: You know, it's such a basic principle. And I would say, probably in the helicopter world, you maintain it. Flying fixed wing, I think it gets lost really quick with all the technology, but it comes to like looking out yeah. the window. And something is basically like, where are they? They're at the Mammoth Lake. Like you either can look out the window and see it. You can see it on a sectional and go there. Like it's something pure and simple, but not just purely relying on the technology. And then again, hats off to those people. I mean, it probably comes down to survival, yeah. level, right? Like yeah. you're surrounded by fire. You're going to do whatever yeah, you can you know, to get, get people to look at you. If I've been sitting there just got brought over. We have, you know, there's people in this group that are burned or
1: have broken bones or whatever. And you know, and we're sitting there for hours and it's quiet right there's nothing going on besides this fire crackling in the background and then i started hearing like helicopters like or any any real like aircraft you know aircraft noise coming over i i think a reaction would be hey we need to signal these guys the visibility is you know, it's dark for them so it's even worse for them right and and uh yeah we need a i would think a signal like there's gotta be one person there who was like a Boy Scout who did something in their lives where they know, okay, we need to get a signal out, right? And that's exactly what they do. Right. This episode is brought to you by Undeniably Dairy. Dairy farmers are more than farmers. They're climate caretakers. They see water as a precious resource. Most farmers recycle water up to four times, from chilling the milk to irrigating the crops. And some even use technology to turn manure into renewable energy. To learn more about what dairy farmers are doing to make their farms more sustainable, visit usdairy.com.
0: So go, going in there, yeah, obviously you find them. And now the next step, I would imagine, is finding a good LZ. Yep. There's probably a lot of threats. I know you do it day in and day out. Again, it's probably like putting on your pants to go to work. But for most of us, I mean, you're going in there at night. I know you do have MVGs, but there's smoke. Like, you don't know if there's power lines, all these other threats. So was that the next step, finding a good LZ? And what did you have Uh, to do? It was kind of difficult, but it happened really quick. Um, And you bring up the power lines. That
1: was, we did see some power lines that crossed the valley we were flying down on the sectional. And so, you know, the ones that that show up on sectional are the big ones, right? And so um that for a moment was actually a really uh a really scary moment because we realized that on the black background we wouldn't be able to see the, the the lines or the poles there's zero contrast right so they were basically invisible um but we did see the powerhouse down the river that they went to so so that be- that became the pole right we always in the helicopter world you know wires are a thing right and so we we, yeah. we always cross at a pole because you know that if you cross over the pole of a the wire, there's not going to be anything above it. Mm. If you try to cross between the poles, you know, you could see the sag of the main power lines, but you may not see the tension line that runs straight across, right? So you, yeah. there's nothing taller than there's not going gonna to be anything sticking out above the poles. So we cross at the poles. Well, that power plant ended up, we knew that these lines are running down to the valley floor to this power plant and we so we knew that's basically our pole uh so we flew as high as we could with you know the smoke above us over that power plant and then once we didn't hit them on the other side we were like okay we're clear you know (laughs) so problems i've never had (laughs) you know so so yeah we got through that and uh and once we got to the lz well then you know we get to the dam and i'm thinking well you know a lot of dams are used as as power as well but uh, no. the, some of the cues for that kind of weren't there. We, we didn't see lights. We didn't see, uh, buildings. We didn't see, um, uh, even on the section, There was no like power lines going to the dam area where the hydroelectric plant might be. So, um, so we kind of determined that like probably if there are wires, they're, they're the smaller, like telephone pole road wires. And we're, we're not that low right now, you know? And, and so that, that risk kind of was mitigated, I thought.
0: But then comes into like finding a good spot to land, right? I mean, not familiar with that area, but I imagine there's not a whole lot of like flat open yeah, spots.
1: Yeah. I mean, these are, these are basically bowls in the mountains that just collect the water, right? So nothing's flat. Um, tree anywhere that would be flat is full of trees. Uh, it was a campsite and, and, and whatnot. But, um, and the water level, I could almost immediately tell that the water, we're in a drought, the water level's down. And so you can see like the tree line. And where the water line was, was a good 40 feet, and it was extremely steep there. And so we we basically um, kind of come to a hover, a slowly, maybe like 20 knots, kind of hover around it, kind of see the group of people, see where their vehicles are, um, and we're just trying to pick out spots. And we're all, like all four of us in the aircraft are like, hey, what about there? What about there? Uh, now, I don't really like that. Well, what if we turn sideways and it's more of a cross thing, or 45 degrees on it, and it's kind of a complex slope? so that's not too much in an evil direction. And I'm like, well, no, I'm that, that and looking at this waterline thing and they're like, that's probably more of a cliff than a slope. You know, <laughs> you don't really want to land there. And uh, so we kind of just circle the people, uh, keeping them out the front of the aircraft and we're over the water and just kind of circle around. And that's when we see the boat ramp. Almost immediately, we're all kind of like, that's the spot. We know that's cement. Uh, and so we know it's going to be at least the same slope the whole time. we um, are not going to have to worry about some sort of cliff where the water's been for, you know, decades and just eroding away the, the ground. Um, and there was, on that boat ramp, there was a little bit of a wider spot, about a third of the way down. Uh, so we're like, okay, that's where we're going to put the back of the aircraft, right there, because that gives us the, the most loader clearance uh, from the trees and anything else. And it just so happened that that boat ramp was, or the launch ramp was, you know, Kind of in the right spot. It was, it was far enough away from the people that weren't going to uh, like blow them around with our rotor wash, we weren't going to cause any uh, extra hazard to them. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't so far away that anybody who was injured was going to take an excessive amount of time to get to the air. So we uh, briefed real quick, and we we set up for, for the landing. The guys in the back are doing their job exactly like they're supposed to. They're, they're saying, hey, this is going to be an upslope landing. You know, up superior forward gear and uh, uh just just like we've trained in our mountain training area right and uh so all that training kind of came back as muscle memory and as we're assessing it on on doing the low recon on the short final we're like hey this is probably going to become a brownout landing just because of the amount of dust in the sand that's on the beach right and uh the the f model chinook is awesome because as a flick of a button, I have one button on the on the thrust or the collective, we call it a thrust, but one button on there, I move it down, left and up and I can let go and the aircraft will come to a hover and just hold it. It's all, uh, the INU's, uh, you know, inertial uh, altitude hold and inertial they figure it all out and they keep you in one spot, you know, and and so what ends up happening is we, we just do this normal approach, we have all these modes armed uh, and ready to go, uh, the altitude hole is armed, but it's disengaged when We have the trigger on the collective pole uh, because, because that's how we tell it. No, I want to move. I want to move something. And uh, and so it was just kind of standing by in the background. And then sure enough, as soon as that dust hits the forward cabin, the guys are calling it. They're, hey, dust is forming. Dust is mid cabin. Dust is coming up to the forward cabin. Uh, that's when we transition inside that our, our NFD has a, uh, at 30 knots, it switches from a normal, HSD or compass card, you know, or HSI basically. Okay. Changes from that to a hover display where uh, we have a vector, like a velocity vector that's shooting out and just a a compass tape. And so we can see our velocity vector. We can see our bank angles and all this other stuff. um, And it really helps with hovering. So we transition inside. I let go of basically everything. The aircraft starts coming to, uh, it starts to slow down on its own, comes to a hover. The symbology kind of changes when it's all, we call it all locked up and all three axes uh, are, are locked up. And symbology, like, hey, we're all locked up. And and that's when the guys in the back start going to work. I can't see anything out front. The guys in the back are like, okay, I need you to come forward 10 and left three. And so start, you know, pushing forward a little bit, get that velocity vector to move a little bit. And they call it down to zero. And when it's at zero, they are over the spot and they are like, all right, you cleared out.
0: Jeez. With this, like, again, like you guys are approaching over the water into the boat yeah. ramp, right? Boat ramp, concrete, or boat launch, I would yeah. say. And the plan, obviously, you're touching down on all your wheels. It's not like hovering back gate and uh, back ramps open, no. right?
1: Yeah, it's not like that two-wheel landing.
0: Okay, yeah. yeah, so touching down, but still, like, not seeing anything going in there. What kind of, like, even space do you need for a Chinook, like, in my mind, I'm worried about like the random, like peer pole or whatever that, you know, is sticking out there. Like how much space do you need to put that? Shnook so out? The, the rotor is, I mean, we're basically a hundred feet
1: long and 60 feet wide. Right. And that's from rotor tip to rotor tip. So a little bit more than that. Um, and what's funny is that a lot of times we'll look at LZs. I'm like, nah, that's too, we're like, that's nah, that's too small. But once you get in there, it's huge. Like, you don't like that, that apparent foreshortening that, that, that that illusion makes you think it's too
0: small and you get in
1: there and it's perfectly fine. And, uh,
0: yeah, something about having these like blades of right. death over your head, at least in my <laughs> mind, that I'm like, man, nah, I need a football yeah. field at least. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so we get over that and, um, and we had planned to do a four wheel landing. Uh, and we, and like any boat launch, I mean, it's a slope, it's a pretty significant one. Uh, every year you've got vehicles yeah. that, you know, you get trucks over there that they get their tires wet and they can't get out of it, right? And uh, so the biggest concern there is on the, so on the after rotor, those rotors are 30 feet in the air, right? So from ground, you could have obstacles 15 and they're not going to hit the rotors because they just don't go that high, right? Um, but the forward rotors, those are a lot lower to the ground. In fact, at the 12 o'clock of the aircraft, just sitting on a level surface, those rotors come down to four feet, four inches. So- yeah. So whenever, because they're, the transmissions are tilted, that way we could ground taxi. Okay. And, um, and so, like, don't ever approach a Chinook from the 12 o'clock, you know, and which is really weird because a lot of other aircraft, they want you to approach from the 12 o'clock. But, uh, yeah. So anytime somebody approaches from the 12 o'clock on us, we're on the ground, our finder usually tries to go tackle some before they get there, you know, that'll, that'll be a bad day for everybody for sure.
0: Yeah. Duly noted. Four feet, four, four inches. inches. So if you're taller than four feet, four inches,
1: it's going to be a bad day.
0: <laughs> Sorry for the interruption, but if you're enjoying this content, please consider following both on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and leaving ratings and reviews on both of those platforms. It greatly helps the podcast out. And don't forget to subscribe to the Aftermath Podcast newsletter, links down below. Sorry for the interruption, but if you're enjoying this content, please consider following both on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and leaving ratings and reviews on both of those platforms, it greatly helps the podcast out. And don't forget to subscribe to the Afterburn Podcast newsletter, links down below. Which, you know, now, because you're, you're crew of four, you got the Blackhawk, Blackhawk's probably a crew of four or three, right? They had three that night, yeah. So uh, you guys are operating alone and afraid out there. And then obviously, uh, people who have been stranded for hours, surrounded by fire and smoke, perceived death if not imminent death i imagine they want to get off that campground as fast as humanly possible so now the guys in the back have gotten you guys safely onto the the boat launch but now the next step is getting those people into the helicopter safely right yeah so they don't get chopped in half exactly
1: yeah so and, and that was part of that whole landing plan i was like hey let's move up the boat ramp a little bit cuz that puts all of the people more to our uh 4 or 5 o'clock that way, it's it would be unnatural for them to move over to our twelve, right? So they're naturally going to go straight towards us, and that's going to take them to like a forty-five degree angle to our ramp, which would be perfect, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we land. Uh, the brakes actually didn't hold, so we had to pick up, reset the brakes, do it again. Uh, <laughs> um, Classic. Yeah, and now, now also on that, on that, on that slope. So the forward gear are like 45 feet from the tip of the forward blade, which is already low. So that creates this approach angle, right? Kind of like a, the approach angle on a truck going, kind of hit an obstacle, right? And uh, so we're getting down close to, to this landing and the forward blades are only like a couple of feet off the ground when the, the forward gear finally touched and we're able to start angling back, you know, start pivoting back before the aft gear. So, and I had been in that position before in Afghanistan, you know, where, We're doing stuff that are really close, really close tolerance, you know. But uh, so I kind of knew, kind of felt like that was okay. But we had gotten probably right to where I was about to say, no, we can't land here when the forward gear touched. So um, did the landing. People are all out the four or five o'clock. Flying engineers lower the ramp and they immediately just start doing their job. They start taking over. Uh, There was nobody on the ground as far as law enforcement or firefighters or anything like that. So it's just a bunch of civilians, which is scary in itself because... Even military people who work like infantrymen, right? Uh, anybody who's out there, they they know their jobs really well until it gets really loud. And as soon as the engines start, the rotors start, and, and you start getting noise, man, you, you just you you lose your mind because you can't hear you you know. And uh, you, the way you communicate changes; you can't communicate verbally anymore. It's it's all like hand motions, and you know trying to do some sort of charade you know on on what you need people to do and so now for untrained people to, to be in that position it can get really really dangerous for them Fire engineers they went out walked out towards the people kind of corralled some people up there was a few people on the ground that that helped take charge and they said hey anybody that's injured let's prioritize the injured and let's prior- prioritize children uh with their mothers and and whatnot and for the most part everybody complied with that everybody worked well out there there was especially on that first lift, there, was, it, there wasn't there was like, um, you know, dropping rice in the middle of, of some other country where you just get bombarded okay. with people, right? Uh, right. And so that worked out well. And so we stayed on the ground for, you know, 15, 20 minutes while they loaded. Uh, did some performance calculations as they told us the numbers of people. So when we were doing our performance calculations, it's uh, we just estimate people's weight. If it's a combat-loaded paratrooper, that dude's 300 pounds with all of his gear. If it's a gotcha. if it's a regular dude with just his backpack on, 200 pounds is what we're is what we're going to average people out at, and that's what we used. Um, even though we had children, which are like 80 pounds, but you know this is America, so there's some people that weigh more than 200. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, myself <laughs> be a little conservative, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we figured, okay, it's a good swag; it'll be close, right? And that really hinges on how many passengers we have, and we rely on the flying engineers to tell us that. Um, and so as they're loading, yeah, you know, I remember I'm looking back and and I see. I see a family, mother and two kids. Kids are the same age as my kids. I mean, that that hit me hard, you know, seeing, seeing them there. They were just so scared. Um, and uh, so, like, all right, can't look back anymore because uh, we need to get yeah. out of here too, right? And uh, so, they get all done, and we get the numbers. They count everybody up today. That's 65 people. Okay, I guess we're loaded up. I mean, normal for a Chinook is 30, 30 to 33, right? That's wild, yeah. We did the math, came out with the weight plugged the weight into the uh, the performance uh, computers on board. It spit out a hover power that we, uh torque for for our hover power. And it was within, it was below the maximums that we could use. And so we were, all right, we're good. Uh, did it before takeoff and took off. No problems. It was heavy, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't undoable. It wasn't bad, you know, it, and, uh, and, uh, and so then we went out the same way that we came in through the through the same valley the Blackhawk was waiting behind us and uh so we kind of came up with a plan as we were sitting there in the LZ and he's like hey I'm I'm right behind you when you come out you just go left and then then I'll go land right where you were and uh, so that worked out well
0: how far out did you take him I mean how, how long of flight was it to get him to safety
1: so that was the other part so we get out of the fire area out of the smoke and then thinking, you know I had already made up a plan before we took off to go to this private airstrip and drop them off at the closest safe place as possible. But then we realized that I'm like, hey, so what are the injuries like? And and the fine juniors were telling me, dude, there, there's some bad ones back here. We've got about, you know, two dozen people that have some sort of injury. Some of these are pretty major, major burns, second, third degree burns, over 40% of your body or more. There's some people with broken bones. One guy literally crawled into the was crawling up to the aircraft because he had broken both of his ankles while he was mm-hmm. running away from the fire. So so we uh, kind of made the decision that all right these people are going to need a higher level of care than just an ambulance sitting at a private airstrip in the middle of the forest. Right. So we we just went straight back to Fresno. I was familiar with Fresno. We knew it's a big city. They have a lot of EMS um and basically just thinking okay I need to get to a level two or something like that, you know, to, to uh get these people their help. And it was a, I want to say it was a, like a 19 minute flight when we finally hit direct Fresno, 19 minutes. And we just went as fast as we could. But the important part of the reserve, we, nobody knew we were coming, right? And we were out in the middle of the mountains. And so we got back on with the CAL FIRE operations chief uh, that we had talked to earlier in the night. We were like, hey, I need you to coordinate with Fresno. I'll let them know that they've got about, they've got 65 people, uh, half a dozen of them are have moderate to severe injuries. Um, and we need as many first responders at Fresno Airport as possible. Um, and so he started that coordination. We uh, made that same redundant call to our own operations when we got within radio contact with them. Um, and then we did another redundant call of, of the same nature with Approach Control, their ATC, as we were going in. Like, hey, seriously, we need everybody. We need everybody there because we're bringing in 65. The black arts picking up more. I don't know how many more and there's more people there. So this is going to be a quite a quite a night. Yeah, so for any hospital to take, you know, 100 people in in the matter of an hour, it that's a lot, you know, for them.
0: Well, I I mean, this ties into obviously everything you guys did that night more to the DFC for. Uh, obviously a lot of heroic actions, but it even comes down to it it seems simple but driving 19 minutes to Fresno versus the private airstrip Again, I don't know that train, but I imagine had you touched down and dropped those people off, that would have been a twelve-hour recovery. Oh, yeah. with one or two ambulances like running up the mountain to get these people. Yeah, so a, a drastic difference in driving to you know a spot that's just a little bit further away via helicopter, a lot further away via yeah. ambulance or car. So things like that come with years of experience, and obviously in the end, men the difference between life and death for some of those people, I'm sure. And for most of those people, a lot of discomfort and getting to a spot where they can start healing and getting to yeah back to a normal life. So yeah. like hats off. Cause again, like that's, it's a very complex problem just flying around in that environment, let alone now dealing with like, you know, Hey, you're meant to fly Chinooks, right? But yeah. now you're going to be doing some problem solving and, and thinking outside of the box and, I think that's one of the awesome things about aviation, but incredible stuff. I know you kind of like just skimmed over, but people really need to like, as they listen, you understand there's a lot going on there, a lot of variables. It really just comes
1: down to the situational awareness. Like we use this term a lot, situational awareness, but what does it really mean? And, And it could mean just knowing where you are in your little piece of airspace, or it could mean, you know, what's my job? What's my team's job right now? Well, what's the job of the units to the left and right of me was, you know, what's, what's the bigger picture. And, and I think that's, you gain that with more experience and with, you know, you get some of the air sense stuff just becomes more natural. And so you're able to think about other things that, that some people wouldn't think, wouldn't necessarily think about. It seems like a huge elephant, right? Like, and I talk about how, like, well, how do you eat an elephant? Well, you need it one bite at a time. Right? Yep. And it really does come down to like compartmentalizing. What do I need to do now? And what do I need to do next? And that's really as far as we were able to think, right? Like, okay, what am I doing now? All right, that's handled. What do I got to do? You know, what are, what's coming up next? All right, that becomes the, the next current problem. Uh, and then, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? And always like one step ahead, trying to stay one step ahead as much as possible. And I think that's what really helped everybody kind of get through all that and, and deal with all these different things that just seem like such a mountain to overcome. And I got to give hats off to the crew as well. Like, this wasn't just me. I mean, I'm the one here's talking, but it was each and every one of them filling each other's right. gaps, right? Like I wasn't perfect for sure that night. And Brady, he, he filled in my gaps. He was he was the coverage there to to cross monitor me. Um and vice versa. There was some experience that I brought to the table he wouldn't have thought of. And there was some experiences that he's had that kind of allowed him to see where I was maybe making a mistake or going down a road that wasn't gonna work out. And the flyers are doing the same thing. They 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 picked up portions of this mission that, that
0: we would have knocked on, Yeah, Definitely a team effort. Yeah. You guys ended up going back uh, two more times, right? Yeah. That night. Yeah. So So I imagine similar, similar type herring approaches and and pulling people out of there. Yeah. So the, the,
1: the positives. So we ended up approaching from three different directions. So a different direction each time because the winds changed and so the smoke was changing. Um, so each approach or each ingress route was different. But once we got to the lake, we were familiar with it, right? And we knew where we were going to land. We, it was the same landing every single time, more familiar with it. So now there's a lot less unknowns uh, and we can do it a little bit quicker. And uh, on the second trip, the, uh, the difference was that we, well, we had time after we dropped off the, the first round of people, uh we were getting gas and the blackout came and dropped off their people and they needed to get gas and so i was able to finally do a face-to-face with the other pilot command and we were able to now instead of doing this hasty like ad hoc type of multi-ship mission now we were able to actually sit down and brief a little bit like all right what do you th- here's the plan what do you think we should do kind of spit all some ideas off of each other and it ended up where we decided he was going to go first and i was going to follow him in um because he would take a lot less time on the ground than I would. So I'd rather wait for 10 minutes while he's loading than have him wait for 45 minutes while I'm loading, right? Uh, so we kind of came up with that plan. Um, he had gone initially on the first run, he was following us. But because of the visibility and the smoke, he decided to turn around and he found another way in off from the east. <laughs> so we were able to brief part of the second trip. like was, hey, I came from the east last time. It was, it was perfectly fine um went around the column of smoke and it was it was good it, it wasn't near as hairy as the valley right that we were kind of married to at the time um so okay cool we'll follow you in so um we did that we went around to the east of the fire and came in from the east found the lake um they landed we kind of circled around we checked out a couple more spots we saw some vehicles on the shoreline so we checked those out to see if the if there were people near near those other vehicles while they were loading. and then once they were out then, uh, then we did the same lining as we did before. And the guys went the work again, Lord uh, and people. Of course, now everybody who's on the ground or everybody who's anywhere near the area, they had now heard these helicopters come in, two helicopters. Then they had an hour basically uh, to kind of uh, collect and and uh, and get to this LZ. So we show up and I'm seeing a lot more people than were there previously. Then I saw the first time. Okay, so this is starting to organize a little bit. Fly go to work, they're loading people, and it seems like it's taking a lot more time. And so we're asking, them, hey, so how many people you got? Hold on, we're, we're still loading, still loading. All right, how much lo- How much longer? And uh, it was just kind of every few minutes or so, we're just sending questions back to see what the status is, right? And, uh, and it was a really long time. And they were like, we're still loading, we're still loading, we're still loading. Just, we're almost done. Uh, we don't have a count for you right now. And I'm thinking like, okay, we'll just wait till they're done. They raise the ramp and it'll have them do a head count real quick before we take off. Um, It must've been a good 20 minutes, 25 minutes. I was sitting there on the ground, which is a lot, you know, and, and um, they're like, okay, we're, we're just about ready to go. We have no idea how many people on board the aircraft. Like we lost count one time ago. (laughs) And so up front, it's kind of like, really? Like now I have, I have no data. Yeah, this performance planning type of stuff. And as I said, just give me an way And they kind of like look over everybody's heads. This is the picture of everybody packed in, you know, that that most everybody saw on social media. Yep. Like um, uh, they're like, ah it looks like 75 people or so. We're like, okay, cool. 75, you know, that's about fifteen thousand pounds. Stick that in. And um, like, okay, so it's it's heavier. We have more gas this time because we didn't spend an hour in route time. Uh so we have a little bit more gas. And it's right at our limit. We're like, okay, cool. 15,000 pounds. That sticks us at, you know, about 49, 49, 40, maybe 47, 49,000 pounds, somewhere around there, give or take. Um, our max gross is 50,000, by the way. And so we're like, okay, th- this will work. The numbers say we'll be hovering with, you know, 85%. We've got whatever, 100, 100 plus available. Okay, this is this should be good. So we got to take off. Now Brady's flying this, this leg and he uh, takes off and immediately i noticed that yeah we're a lot heavier than what these guys said we we'll be estimated right a lot heavier the whole aircraft is shaking you know you could feel the blades sla- they're, like they're just coned up so because they what happens you pick up weight like those rotors are holding all the weight so they end up coning, coning up you know ugh, really bad. which these are all
0: terrible things for me to think about
1: yeah so it's yeah it's like like wings are like lo- like wing loading right and yeah and uh you know, you start thinking about it aerodynamically. It's just, you know, where the rotor system's flat, all that lifts going up. But as soon as they start coning, now some of that upward vector's gone. They have more of an inward vectors. It wants to speed up a little bit because you've got this conservation of angular momentum stuff going on, right? So there's a lot of drag and and, and whatnot. And, but this, the whole, I don't think I've ever felt the aircraft shake like this before. And it's well above, I mean, we're into like 95%. They, uh torque just to hover this thing because of the angle we were on when when the aircraft lift up off the ground it was still in this nose high it, the 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 boat ramp was a 13 degree nose high slope and so we were still kind of in this nose high attitude when we picked up off the ground and so the aircraft immediately started like shifting back or or drifting back and coupled that with uh this really aft cg it took a lot of like forward cyclic in order to level everything out And when that happened, we ended up pulling, we ended up over-torquing a little bit. even though the engines were producing, I don't remember what the number was, but let's say it was like 118% that they could produce. Their transmissions are still limited at 100%, right? And so we ended up pulling 103% for a little bit and anything above 95%, the system just screams in your ear, torque, 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 you know, and it it gets really annoying really fast. Uh, Yeah. Um, But, and we were there forever, it seemed like. So we were hovering over the lake, all these people on board, this unknown amount of people. And we're like, "Hey, we got to accelerate because at a helicopter, you've got to outrun your own rotor wash. And once you do that, the rotor system becomes more efficient because now you're operating in clean air rather than dirty air that's moving down, right? And so we started accelerating and this is kind of where like that high altitude training came in because so now we're at maximum power. There's nothing left to pull. And we're kind of level there, and once you start accelerating, now you're you're using that upward lift vector. You're tilting it forward to accelerate, which means you're going to descend a little bit. So you descend until you get to ETL or effective translational lift. That's going when you're outrun your rotor wash. Finally, everything is, becomes more effective, and then you start climbing, right? So there, so on this on this level of acceleration takeoff, you kind of end up dipping down a little bit and then finally getting out of it, you know, and and climbing away and so i was kind of expecting that brady told me afterwards he goes dude i've never been pulling maximum power and descending still when when i'm taking off and so that was kind of a new experience for him uh which in that situation just must have been like "Eyes this huge like what
0: am i going to go into the drink and you know what's what's going on here you know i can only imagine how that felt Uh oh cw5 Rose. Rosamond over there just smoking a cigarette yeah, instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah,
0: no big no, deal. This is yeah, eating my phone or <laughs> whatever it is, right? No, it, it was still
1: a pretty like I you know, pretty hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, it's one of those moments you're like, all right, you gotta sound calm to keep right. everybody
0: else calm. <laughs> you know? Like this is not fun. I am not having fun. Yeah, right yeah. Now. Yeah. Let's get out of this right now. You know? The um, the w- dirty rotor washing, that's the same like again for a dumb fixed wing guy. The Bin Laden helicopter, right? Like the rotor wash going into the compound. Yeah. That was the same type aerodynamic effect, right? That caused it to lose lift and crash inside the compound. Yeah. So it's the same thing as you're battling. And and so you imagine if
1: you you have a tailwind, which I think those guys ended up with a tailwind, which was kind of caused a little bit of that. So now, let's say you have a 10-knot tailwind. That rotor wash is getting pushed in front of you 10 knots. Now you've got to go 10 knots faster in order to outrun it. Than you normally would have, right? And so now, this this period of where you're dipping down, you can match power, you're dipping down, it becomes longer. And maybe you don't have the power to do it. You don't have the power to get outside of that go to watch, which
0: I think is what kind of uh, caused their, their issue, right? Yeah, I'm sure there's a multitude, yeah. multiple variables that go into it. But everything you've described thus far in the past five minutes has sound absolutely terrifying to me. So, <laughs> so we finally take off, we're, we're getting clear.
1: Uh, we're actually climbing, which is great. The aircraft's still shaking. Um, <laughs> yeah,
0: that's where you want to be, climbing.
1: Yeah, and so, um, and, I mean, you'll understand this. I mean, you, to get out of the terrain, you want to climb that, you know, VX or VY, depending on what your your thing is, right? And we don't have a published VX or VY in, in the aircraft uh, or in the helicopter.
0: Uh, some do. Because you can just you can just hover, right, and just go above. The yeah, terrain. but that, that's what the, that. In, I'm kidding. Yeah. Well, you could. But that induced drag is so high
1: on the, that end of the yeah. chart, like it a lot of drag. And uh, so we have a max rate of climb airspeed, which is basically, uh, it's your VY, right? So uh, okay. that coupled with maximum power applied should give you your best chance. That's, that's where the drag's the minimum, right? And whatever the difference is between that point of the drag curve and your power available, right, is is how well you can climb. So it's like the bottom of the bucket, basically, right? Yeah, okay. Um, and so that speed was 80 knots. At that at that weight, in those conditions, 80 knots. Um, and it ranges between like 68 knots and 82 knots, typically, based on weight and conditions. So we knew, okay, 80 knots, let's shoot for 80 knots. And, and Brady, he's not accelerating. He's getting to like 70 knots, and we're only climbing out at like 300 feet per minute, maybe. And, and he's trying to pull more, more torque in. The engines are super high. We're already at our 10-minute uh, engine temperature limit. And uh, I'm like, dude, we can't pull anymore. You need to get up to 80 knots so that we can actually climb better. And he looks over. He's like, dude, I can't. I can't get to 80 knots because we have another gauge. It's called the cruise guide indicator. And all it does is it measures stress on the rubber systems. It takes the one with the worst amount of stress and sends it to the gauge. Um, and what that is... What that's measuring is the bending forces of the shaft, the vertical shafts that the rotor systems are on. Because if you ever had one of those, um, like little helicopter toys, you, you do that and it flies up in the air. If you try to, yep. if you try to shoot it in a direction. It'll, it'll. Um, what happens is you've got this retru- this blade that's going with the direction of the moving vessel, right? And uh, so you've got this advancing blade and a retreating blade. And so their their wind velocities going across them are different, right? And so lift equation, V squared stuff, you've got more lift happening on that advancing blade than you have on the the retreating blade, right? Science. Science stuff, right? Um, Yep. So what happens is you get this this dissymmetry of lift, but because of, I'm going to sound like it's in W5, I know it, but uh, (laughs) you get this thing called, you know, uh, phase lag or gyroscopic precession. And so, You've got all this lift happening on one side of the rotor system but it doesn't take effect until 90 degrees later and so what that ends up happening it ends up called in this thing called blowback where the rotor system wants to tilt backward to stop you and you'll see that on the toy it'll go forward and then it'll blow back kind of stop and so we overcome that through the blades flapping right? they're able to hinge and so they can change the angle of attack as they're going around the rotor disk. Um, so that it equalizes that, that the symmetry of both, um, but then at a certain point, you have to do that cyclically and it shouldn't, in traditional helicopters, you do that cyclically automatically, right? Through pitch changing, uh, using cycle. But for us, uh, it doesn't happen until like 70 miles, 60, 70 miles. So the, the automatic system will tilt those things forward. And that's all to reduce the stresses on the transmission shaft. Basically, you have got this, okay. 10-foot shaft, but the transmission's here. This, You know, you've got this big long arm where the rotor system is, and it just keeps on the push back, and so it starts bending that 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 uh, that shaft. And so this indicator measures all that, and that thing was tagged out in the red, and we were only at like 65, 70 dots. I was like, look, man, I can't go any faster. The CGI is in the red already, so we had to slow down. Like, oh yeah, that's more important than this number I have stuck in my head. So we slow down and we're like at 60 knots, and this thing finally comes down to like middle of the yellow. I'm like, okay, that's a little bit more doable. Cool. Cause the last thing I want is for this rotor system just to fall apart, you know, and, and come off. So we don't, yeah, red bad, yellow better. And, uh, spinning <laughs> blades of death, I tell you. Yeah, and we're climbing the whole time and I'm trying to look for like, okay, when can we make this turn? And next thing you know, we're at, we're at 8,000 feet before we, you know, and it's 40 degrees out. So that TA is, is, huge ta number right and yep. um and we finally were able to make the turn so that we can clear the mountains this was seven eight minutes uh into this climb and we're in our 10 minute limit and so there might have been a couple times we were like okay reduce power real quick okay timer turned off turn the timers right back on again you know
0: uh, yeah. what's a reset i'll you tell know, it's it back was. in limits yeah I could go you know, nothing says how many times i can be in this limit you know right uh, and so
1: we, we, we do that and we finally get over this ridge line to where we can now start descending. And as we descend, we can now we're starting to be able to pick up more speed. We're down to like fifty-five knots in this climb. So we're battling this. So you know, our induced drag is kind of coming up on the on the back side of this power curve, right? Doing this like slow flight stuff, right? And uh um, so we're we're only climbing like two, three hundred feet per minute at a time, which is horribly slow and still got this max power applied, trying to like balance airspeed versus climb uh performance um and that was the second time where my theaters kind of went off kind of like oh boy i hope this works out right and so that was that was kind of hair raising for me at that point thinking are we going to be able to get over these mountains because i really don't want to have to go through that that valley again because now the conditions are worse but it worked out the aircraft stayed together it was wonderful uh we uh (laughs)
0: That's a good day. Yeah.
1: Stayed together. We started descending into the once we saw Fresno, we started descending uh into the Fresno Valley. Performance got better. We were able to go a little bit faster and still stay in the green. Um our uh our power that available started getting better as we descended, got out of the the heat from the fire, right? So the D was going down pretty significantly. And so now we're we're doing uh we're doing our before landing, right? And one of the and so now because we're going so slow, it that turned into a 30 minute flight. But and, and, and we're burning like 4,000 pounds of gas an hour, which is just a huge amount. And we're doing our, before our lighting. It says performance considerations check. Oh, well, we don't know. Like we know what is available, but we don't know how much we weigh. We don't know. We know we took off from with this amount of weight, we took off at 3,300 feet. The airports at 300 feet are a little bit cooler. So we know we got better performance, but we really don't know what to expect. So uh we decide that we were gonna attempt to do a roll on landing. Um keep so basically land like an airplane, right? So it allows us to use less power because we don't have to get into the the uh towards the zero side of you know, less than 20 knots, right? Where our drag curve goes way up. The induced drag is huge, right? And so uh we can stay in like the lower part of the drag curve, use less power to land, roll it on and decelerate using aerodynamic braking. Really, really easy. Um, So we're like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. Okay, we can start doing the checks to do the, the, the roll-on, uh, coordinate with ATC to get the whole run wrong. And then the fine engineer in the back goes, well, guys, that's going to be a problem. Okay, why is this going to be a problem? And he goes, I have people on the ramp who can't close the ramp. So the ramp is still level. And if we do the roll-on, we scrape the ramp the whole way. Uh, oh, wow. And I'm like, geez, so you have no room to, you know, push them forward, get ramp up. No, there's no room. They're already back here squished. And apparently they were like, they had like their necks tilted because their head was hitting the ceiling of the cabin and everything. And, um, the guys were telling them like, Hey, if you need to hold on to something, hold on here, not there. Cause that's, that's a hydraulic line or that's a drive shaft, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, and so like, okay, we can't do the roll on that. Um, so we, we ought to just use the, use the runway still. And I briefed and. Um, Brady on, all right, just keep your speed up at like 16 knots, stay at the bottom of the bucket until we get, you know, within 10 feet of the ground, and we'll just slowly decelerate. And that's the next best thing, right? Stay close to the ground where we're still in ground effect, Um use less power, to hover and give ourselves the best chances of making this successful and and not rough, because if people are standing and we have this harder type of landing, not a hard landing, but like a rough landing, uh, we could injure some people, right? So we do that. Uh, it works out fine. We uh, we we get to the hover. We land. Start taxing And We notice that even the steering is sluggish. The power steering is sluggish it's just because of all this weight that's in the aircraft. Um, and I told the guys, like, hey, when, when we park, I need to get a solid head count. When they when they start deplaning, count everybody. It took a long time. Like we shut down completely. We got all of our stuff off, and we're trying to get out of the cockpit, and half the cabin is still full, and. Uh, the final number came out to 102 and I was just, wow, absolutely blown away. Like that's over triple what we normally take. And, uh, no wonder we were so heavy. Right. And, uh, I, I still, I really, I still don't know how, how that happened. How got 102 people on board. It was absolutely ridiculous.
0: Yeah. That's phenomenal. We say like normal max weight, like 15,000 pounds of cargo. Yeah. Right around 16, 15 or 16 or whatever. And so I mean, just do the
1: math, uh, you know, 102 times 200, you're looking at 20,000 pounds. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, like we said before, that's a swag. Some of them are children, some right. of them are guys like you and me, right? So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you're going to be plus or minus there a little bit, but still, like, I mean, 102 people, like that's phenomenal. Obviously, the performance, the Chinook, I mean, speaks for itself. Yeah. I know you guys are working it hard, but yeah. And over the coming days, back we went through that scenario backwards and we're like okay we figured
1: out you know what what was our performance like we, we now that we know the number what did the chart say and it was it was pretty well outside the charts like when we took off when we when we took off from yeah. mammoth pools um, we estimated we were at about fifty two thousand pounds so about 2000 2000 pounds over max gross weight for those conditions once we had to do the climb to eight thousand feet, we we figure we were about ten thousand pounds over gross for those conditions. But some through the engines being you know better than standard, through whatever else, like it worked out. Right. And um, to give some perspective, was like fifty two thousand pounds isn't that big. A, it's not. It, it's over for us, but in the special ops community, they operate at fifty four thousand pounds all the time. So the aircraft can do it structurally. It's just that TBOS go down uh, when you when you do that and whatnot. So uh, it really came yeah. down. I think the worst part was that climb to eight thousand. Uh, that's where we were really outside of the chart limits and really in, in like basically test flight mode. Now you know.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. So at night between you and the Blackhawk crew, again, you guys. Uh, rescued was it two hundred forty two individuals? Is that what you guys were credited with? So,
1: yeah, so the number came out to two hundred forty two, but what we but we had a different number amongst the aircraft. Um, we came out to um, like two sixty one or something like that. And the difference there was when they came up with that two hundred forty two number, that was everybody that signed in to the triage center there at the on the guard ramp, but there were nineteen people that got taken away by ambulance uh, immediately and never signed in. So so when we were like. This is the number I have. This is the number you have. Worst difference, they realized, oh, it's the people that never signed in.
0: I mean, hats off to you guys. I know you're working really hard. Obviously, it took a lot of guts to go in there. I know no one else was flying. It's nighttime. There's smoke. There's fire. Um, and without you guys doing that, there'd be a lot of people who probably would not be with us uh, today. So, At least a few, I think. Yeah, th- no doubt. I mean, even i and, and can walk and move around. I know uh, the ones with burns and things like that spend the night out in the wilderness is probably not going to lend well to it. You if the fire stayed off. So again, incredible story. I would like to kind of wrap up at this is, we really dove deep down into this mission, <laughs> which is phenomenal. And people are going to be fascinated by, uh, and didn't really get to talk a whole lot about you. One thing I like to do when I wrap up an episode with guests is kind of ha- ask them, Hey, if you saw 15 year old Joe today, Is there anything you would say to him to do something different, change something, or would no change and just keep pressing forward?
1: Um, I probably tell him, don't buy that
0: time, that timeshare. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's siege advice. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. Like I, um, there's very little that I regret growing up. My parents did an excellent job of keeping me busy to keep me out of trouble uh, growing up. Kept me in the scouts, you know, did the Eagle Scout thing. uh, And once I was done with that, put me, uh, I was in Civil Air Patrol for a while. uh, Through high school, kept me really busy and out of trouble, like you said. And um, uh, even though, like, my main main goal was to go fly jets uh, in the Air Force, right? I really think that I ended up where I needed to be. Um, This all, I was, like I said, right place at the right time is how we started this whole thing, right? And I was the first W1 that had come back from flight school to this unit uh, in like 20 years. And so, of course, got hazed and thought it was the worst thing in the world, you know, but that set me apart from my peer group. So my closest peer group was, you know, a year behind me. Uh, in the unit. And um that that let me go on this deployment that nobody wanted to go on, uh, but then prove myself enough to get a full time job uh in the guard. And so I've been I've been here as a federal technician, you know, since 04. And um, uh and luckily I had some leadership that saw potential. They were kind of worried about me at first because I was young twenties, you know, and they're like, Ed, I hope he matures but, you know, we'll hire him anyways, because, you know, we think he's got potential and, and, uh, uh, and luckily that all worked out. And now I have this, um, uh, I you know, I, I've lived 10 minutes away from where I work. Um, and I'm in a position, uh, you know, over these years, I'm in a position now to do some of these, these things that, that we did on the fifth, uh, and can bring the experience to these, these guys coming in now. And just now the name of the game is just impart this knowledge, right? Like, I guess the only thing a 15 year old Joe could do is maybe listen a little bit better.
0: You know, that's why, probably all of us. Probably, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like,
1: there's, we've all had plenty of lessons that we've had to learn the hard way, even though we we know that there are people out there that tried to teach us. You know, and no. but we're young and headstrong, and, and you know, and you know, just try to learn from from other people's mistakes because sometimes when you learn the hard way, it's it's also the fatal way, right? And it's true. I think. There's been plenty of times where luck has been on my side. Yeah, for sure.
0: Same. For sure. always helps learn from those that come before you. Uh, But sometimes we have to learn the hard way. And the lucky ones, we make it through without any significant wounds or permanent
1: damage. I think we all go around, especially in aviation, we go around with, you know, two bags. We have our skill bag. We have our luck bag. And you want to be able to pull from your skill bag a whole lot more than you pull from your luck bag. Because one day you're going to reach in and it's going to be empty. Yep. No doubt. (laughs) That's
0: a good way to looking at it. Well, again, uh, Joe, Chief Warrant, Joseph Rosamond, you and your crew, uh, hats off to you guys, all the uh, recipients of the Distinguished Flying Cross, again, for all the heroic actions you guys did on September 5th and saving 260 plus civilians trapped in the Creek Fire there out in California. So thank you for what you guys do. I appreciate you taking the time and joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, wherever you're listening, hit subscribe. And if you can, leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That definitely helps out. Until next time, don't bring a weaker.